I'm Malini, and I will be doing the second Bible reading today. Um, the reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Melini, and thank you, Margaret, for praying um, on our behalf and praying for us. 
Uh, well, do keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1. We're back to what we normally do in our church when we study the Bible is we go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, almost verse by verse, depending on what, what book it is. And so we'll be considering the Gospel of Luke up to the end of the year, and we'll take a little summer break, and we'll continue the Gospel of Luke come term one. And so do keep your Bibles open. We'll actually work our way through this, but, but let's pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that what we need to know, that you will teach us how we must change, that you will do that in us uh, for your sake and for the good of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine you are a faithful follower of God just before the turn of the first century, about 5-4 BC. You're living in Judea, ancient Palestine. Now, there's a king over the land. The king is the great king Herod. He's a despot, infamous for his cruelty. It's been said that it's better and safer to be a pig in his kingdom than one of his sons. I mean, he's killed off a few of his sons. But he's somewhat a puppet king. And that's because the nation, your nation, was under foreign rule. The Romans, they're powerful They've got their governors set out throughout the Roman Empire and they rule with an iron fist. They collect taxes. They place their heavy hand over your nation. And if you choose to rebel, it's the crucifixion. Now, you're a faithful follower of God. And you're wondering, where is God in all of this? It doesn't seem right. And you ask that question because... There has been silence from God for about 400 years. Not one word, not one sign, not one vision. The last prophet that God sent to your people was the prophet Malachi. And that was about 400 years ago. And since then, not a word. And now you're living in the dark. Malachi, he promised, you looked at his uh, prophecies. He promised that God would come. He promised that God would come to his own temple. And so you look through the scriptures and you see Malachi chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. You see, God is promising. God, you promise. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so you're a faithful follower of God, but God has been silent for 400 years and you question Oh God, where are you? You said you would come. Where is this messenger you speak of? Where is this long-awaited Messiah we've been waiting for so long for? I mean, yeah, you did send Daniel back then or Ezekiel or Malachi, but now complete silence for centuries. Where's the consolation of Israel? Where's the king from the line of David? Where is the comfort you promise in Isaiah 40. And so if you can feel at least a little bit of that weight of longing, of anticipation, of expectancy, we're coming a little close to the mood of what it would have been for the people of God just before the turn of the first century. And so now we come to the Gospel of Luke. 400 years of silence was now about to be broken. But before we consider how that silence was broken in Luke chapter 1, 
given that we're starting this new series, which we'll be studying over, perhaps it will take us a few years, we'll do it in blocks. It's worth us understanding what was the purpose of this gospel. You see, the author of the gospel of Luke was Luke. He was a physician. He was also a historian. He was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. And straight from the outset, we read why he recorded down this gospel. It was so that his patron, Theophilus, some guy we don't know too much of, who has had some exposure to Christianity. He may or may not be a Christian, but it was so that he might come to know the certainty, the exact truth of the things that have taken place surrounding the person and life of Jesus Christ. And as a historian, he was scrupulous in his accuracy, working off sources, original sources, interviewing eyewitnesses, and some were the apostles themselves. He researched, he investigated, so that what we have here is reliable. And so we read, have a look, your Bible's open, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so that was Luke's purpose. And what we do know about, the, about this author, Luke, was that he was meticulous in his historical detail. It was saturated with specific and particular detail of where and when things happened. And so, for example, he'll use a lot of geographical markers. When he talks about Jesus going up to Jerusalem, that was exactly what happened because Jerusalem, you see, sits high along the coastal highlands between the Jordan Valley and the coastal plains. He had to go up to Jerusalem. He was accurate, even, even in the topography. And he uses all these temporal markers. He was very specific. Even here in this passage, Elizabeth kept to herself for five months. I mean, he wrote this gospel about 60 years afterwards. He could have said, well, it was a couple of months she was at home. But he was specific, five months. But of course, more than just a historian, he was a theologian. You know, if you came along to the lecture on Monday night with Doug sharing about what Luke did and how he constructed this gospel, you can see that he was a thoughtful, considered theologian, structuring the gospel along theological themes and developments. And so what we have here in this gospel which we'll be spending time together as a church, is that we can know the certainty of what did take place about the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, what Luke produced was inspired by the Holy Spirit as well. And so this is really as good as gold. And so where did Luke begin? Let's have a look. Well, he begins this story of how the 400 years of silence was broken. We see here three things. The predicament, the promise of hope, and the promise fulfilled. And so we meet this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both from the priestly lines. And so Elizabeth from Aaron's line. Zechariah himself a priest. And so you can consider this, this was a power couple, you know, double the goodness. And we're told something of their commitment to God. They were your faithful Law-abiding, upright worshippers of God. You cannot fault their lives. And that's what we see. Look at verse 6 now. 
Both of them were upright in the sight of God. You know, not just before men and women, but in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now, of course, if that was the case, and we would think the same way today, if that was the case, if they were so upright, you would expect things to go so well for them. If they were so upright, surely God's favor would be upon them. But then we hear the predicament. Do you see it? They were godly. And then we come to that three-letter word, but. Verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Now, when you read that, we may or may not feel the grief they felt. But perhaps it's a grief that's only really felt by those who experience or find themselves in such a situation. I know some wanting to have children, but unable to have children, and it is not easy at all. But of course, with such grief, we bring it to the Lord. But you see, for them, Zachariah and Elizabeth, it was a big deal. Because culturally speaking, it was shameful not to have children. If you're married, then you are to have children. In my own personal Bible reading this past week, I I got up to Genesis 29 and 30. And it's just a fascinating story, reading of Leah and Rachel and them battling out to have children with Jacob. And you can sense their, their shame when they were unable to. But it was not just cultural. It was theological. To be blessed by God means to have children. And so in their minds, to not have children perhaps suggest that God has removed his favor. But of course, if you're familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, when we read this, when we read verse 7, it should bring to mind the stories of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Samson's mother and Hannah. Maybe after reading verse 7, we are to also expect something big was about to happen. And so that was the predicament. Old, childless, and silence from God. But now we see the promise of hope. In fact, the name Zechariah means God remembers. And when God remembers, it is not as though God has forgotten. I mean, now, just previous series should have helped us understand that. God is omniscient he's all-knowing all-wise he does not forget but when we read in the bible that god remembers it's not because he's forgotten but when we read that god remembers it means that god is about to act he's about to do something and his voice will be heard once again and so what happened well zachariah was on duty with his priestly responsibilities now the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions. And each division of the priesthood got the privilege of serving at the temple twice a year for one week at a time. And the greatest privilege for any priest who was serving was to actually get to go into the temple place, into the holy place, and to offer the incense. So this is not entering behind the curtain, which can only be entered once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But for any priest, any ordinary priest, to get to go into the temple 
and to offer the incense. That was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Many priests never got that privilege. And so you can imagine in this story, this was the greatest moment in Zachariah's life. The lot fell on him. He got to go in. And so verse 10, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. And so what happened? Inside the temple, look at verses 11 and 12. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Notice there again the detail that Luke recorded was on the right side. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. And of course you would be. I mean, on the most important day of your life, offering incense, if that was not a big deal enough, to see an angel of the Lord that takes the cake. I mean, being so old, I would have expected him to get a heart attack, but he didn't. But what did the angel say to him? Well, the angel broke the 400 years of silence and provided the promise of hope. One, you will be given a son. You're old, but you'll be given a son. Two, he'll bring joy and he'll be great. And three, he will prepare the way for the Lord, what Malachi prophesied. And so first, you will have a son, verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. And so the giving of a son was an answer to his prayer. God heard his prayer, and God answered, and the answer was a son. But now that's worth reflecting on for just a moment. I can imagine them praying for a son when they were younger, in their 20s, in their 30s, maybe even in their 40s. But now they're old, which means, I mean, relatively, in their 60s, 70s. Would you still be asking for a child if you're 60 or 70? What do you reckon? Would you still be praying for a son when you've turned 60? Now, we don't know. Perhaps they did. But perhaps the prayer was not specifically for a son. I mean, they knew they were well beyond the childbearing age. Perhaps what Zechariah was praying, even at that moment, was what a faithful priest would have prayed. And that was for the redemption of Israel, for the consolation of the people of God, for the promises of Isaiah 40 to be fulfilled. Comfort, comfort my people, for the Messiah to come, for the kingdom of God to arrive. And little did he know the way the kingdom of God would arrive would first be in the giving of that son. And a son with a great name, if I may say so myself. John. It means God is gracious. And so he'll be given a son and he'll bring great joy and he will be great. Great joy not only to his parents, you see, verse 14. Many will rejoice because of his birth. That's how important he'll be. And why? Verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. I mean, if God thinks you're great, then you're great. You're not just great before the eyes of men and women, but before God himself. And we're told he won't be drinking wine. Instead, he'll be filled with the Spirit of God, which means he'll be equipped even from birth 
by God himself. He'll bring great joy. And three, we see this joy and greatness is tied not merely to who he will become, but it will be tied to his God-given role in preparing the people of God as a forerunner to the Messiah. His greatness is tied not to himself, but to the one who will come after him. You see, he's the messenger of Malachi 3. He's the one who will come in the power and spirit of Elijah. He, in a sense, stands with the prophets of the Old Testament. He, in a sense, stands as the last prophet of the Old Testament. But he'll be the greatest one. Why? Because of his immediacy to the Messiah. Out of all the prophets, he was the only one who got to point out, there is the Lamb of God. And so verse, 13, we, uh, verse 17 now, we read, who will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, which means perhaps there will be unity again within the household, or perhaps it could refer to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, looking favorably on this generation now, who have for so long turned their backs on God. And so to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, and for what purpose? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so his greatness is tied not to himself, but to the greater one who will come after him, whom he is preparing the people of God for. You know, he's like that messenger, that royal messenger who goes ahead before the king arrives. In the ancient world, before the king visited a town, a village, messengers would go, the royal messengers would go ahead to prepare the place, the people, the king is going to come. And John will prepare the people of God that way. Now, how did Zechariah respond to that news? Well, we know that it was not a good response because of the punishment he got. You see, his response may seem innocent enough. And probably if we were there, we would respond in that same way. I mean, no one could have expected that to have happened that day. But his response amounted to, in a sense, unbelief. In a sense, he was asking, well, show me a sign. Show me a sign. Are you for real, angel? Verse 18. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And with almost a rebuke, which would have unnerved him. Zechariah was put in his place. Look at verse 19. I am the angel Gabriel. Now this was the same angel who appeared to Daniel and gave him the vision of the end time events. I'm the angel Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. It's not, this was not one of your lowly angels the one who stood in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And he was given a sign. He asked for a sign. He was given one. Just as God broke his silence, Zechariah was silenced. Now, you might be wondering, why that punishment? Why silence him? Wasn't this cause for rejoicing? Go out, tell all the other priests, tell Elizabeth, why this punishment? Well, perhaps it was just matching his doubt. He'll bear the sign of his doubt and unable to speak. 
Perhaps it was to keep the revelation hidden until the proper time. But perhaps there was something deeper happening here. Perhaps him as priest, who represented the law, the old covenant, the temple worship, was now silenced just before the announcement of the gospel. There will be a new way now. And so the centuries of silence was broken. The promise of hope was made. And it will start with this miraculous birth of one called John. And now in the final verses, we see the promise fulfilled, at least in part. After finishing up with his priestly duties, he went home and Elizabeth became pregnant. Now you can imagine what type of shock that would have been for Elizabeth. I mean, she would have been in her 60s. Zachariah, unable to speak for her entire pregnancy, and she's probably thinking that's not a bad thing. But you can imagine her mixed feelings. I always wanted a son, but, I mean, I didn't expect this. But it's worth reflecting on what she said. Verse 25, our last verse. The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You see, she recognized this was the Lord's doing. The Lord's initiative, the Lord's grace and kindness. It couldn't have been anyone else or anything else. And we see here her barrenness it was cause for God to show his sovereign power. Just like what he did for Sarah and Hannah. This was no ordinary child, but the herald of the Messiah. And so the promise of hope fulfilled, at least in part. And so this was the beginning of great joy. Centuries of silence, now broken. The anxious weight has now been lifted, and God has spoken. All those Old Testament prophecies, the coming of the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of sins, the one who will reign on the throne of David, the Messiah, the anointed one, everlasting life, that was now about to take place. And it started with this elderly couple. And so what we have at this stage in our study in the Gospel of Luke is really, in a sense, like the undercoat before you put on the paint. It's preparing the way. It's important preparation work in anticipation of the greater miracle to come. This was the dawn of the Messiah. And so what do you think we are to make of this opening chapter in the Gospel of Luke? Well, I'll end with three quick points. First, God is no longer silent. I mean, there was that period. He was silent for 400 years. But God is no longer silent. The second one, God has not forgotten. That's Zechariah's name. And third, God has shown his favor. That's John's name. And so first, God is no longer silent. You see, the experience of the people of God was that God had been silent. And it felt like it was going on forever. They were living in the dark, not having a word or revelation from God. And perhaps even today, as we reflect today, we may feel a little bit like that. What is God doing at the moment on the world scene? 
What is God doing at the moment in our own lives? Where is God? And perhaps for some of us it may feel like God has been silent. But the truth is God has not been silent. Because God has already spoken in the most powerful, profound, dramatic way possible. Not through a prophet. Not through John. Not through some medium. But by his own son, Jesus Christ. That's how the author of Hebrews puts it. Not through, but by his son. We have his word. I mean, that was the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. And so what it means then, in, in times of doubt now, and when we're thinking, what is God telling me at the moment? In times of despair now, I don't know what God wants now. In seasons of struggle, we might question, is God silent? Well, we can say God is not silent, for he has spoken already. Just look to Jesus Christ, who continues to speak into our lives and into this world, who continues to make those promises and those offer of the gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and weak, and I'll give you rest. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would tell you. I'm always with you until the end of the age. You see, God is no longer silent because what Jesus said continues to be true. God speaks to us today. The second, God has not forgotten. That was the name Zechariah. To remind us, God has not forgotten the plight of this world. God has not forgotten his promises to those who are in Jesus. And God has not forgotten us. I mean, I know even Christians who feel this way today. With the way our world is heading, civil liberties in so-called Christian nations taken away. Hard to believe. Persecution of Christians, not decreasing, but increasing. I mean, consider Afghanistan, what happened there lately. It's not easy for the Christians there. North Korea, even China. I mean, speaking to someone just this past week in one of the growth groups, it's not good what's happening in China at the moment. With so many things happening in our lives, we often forget the plight of our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world who are in tougher situations than us. Hard copies of the Bible, you can't order it in China anymore. Do you know that? Bible apps removed. One shared to me this past week, his grandmother, this was during the Cultural Revolution, had to hide the Bible so it won't be taken away. But God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten his promises, nor his people. It may be hard for us to see what God is doing. We may feel like we're in Zachariah's shoes. But God has not forgotten his purposes in Jesus for his people in Jesus. And that should give us great, great hope. And finally, God has forever shown his favor. God has shown his grace. That's the name John. God is gracious. And so here's something for you. Every time you see a John, just remember, God is gracious. Because he has given not John, but his son. And so even now, as we prepare, you know, Christmas is, what, a bit over a month away? As we enter into this Advent season, it's going to get busy 
our times and space will be crowded. Shopping centers busy again. But let us remember this. Prepare rightly. God is no longer silent. God has not forgotten. But God has shown his favor already to us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these words, we are so thankful that you did not keep us in the dark, but you have spoken not only through the prophets of old, but by your Son, Jesus Christ. And so even now, as we prepare our hearts for the coming Christmas season, help us to prepare rightly to see that your grace is abounding to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to take advantage of the opportunities that you place around us to proclaim him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.